know, when does the exercise compulsion start or when do the disordered narratives about exercise start? I mean, when do we start exercising in school, right? Like PE class, don't we have to do PE or recess like Mm -hmm. so early? And it's not done intentionally. It's put on your gym uniform, change in a locker room, you know, with other kids who are inevitably going to make fun of you based off of their own stuff and beliefs and whatever their parents are saying that they're regurgitating and whatever issues mental health wise or otherwise that their teachers have. And what I the word that comes to mind again are words, perfect storm. Mm-hmm. You put kids that are just trying to fit in and find their way in the world being put into these complicated and nuanced systems that are typically done without too much thought. And you don't have a teacher telling kids usually to honor their bodies. You have a PE coach yelling at the slowest kid for running a mile, making them step on a scale in front of everybody Mm -hmm. and tell them how not good enough they are. And I want to wag a finger at the person who, and that's like the least of it, who created the presidential fitness test, which is absolute nonsense. And we need to do away with the BMI and making, you know, kids and teens and step on it and over time be told that there's something wrong with their height and their weight and doctors in the medical field early on perpetuating fat phobia. Like you go in with a headache and they're going to say, what are you eating? How much are you exercising? It's absolute garbage. Welcome to Maybe Running Will Help, the podcast that reminds us that running is about more than just performance and PRs. I'm Nikki Tamburino, also known on Instagram as One Classy Mother Runner. I'm an RRCA certified running coach and personal development enthusiast who knows firsthand that running has the power to transform our minds and our lives one step at a time. I'm excited to bring you stories from the community as well as research so we can explore the expected and not so expected ways running can and has helped make life better, regardless of your pace, place, or experience. Let's get started. On today's episode, we will be hearing thoughts and stories from a variety of guests with a range of qualifications. While the advice you hear may be coming from a clinician, these are general recommendations. Please understand that your individual experience is unique and that you deserve to be treated and supported as such. Many of our guests have provided contact information for those who are interested in connecting. If you or someone you know may be suffering from an eating disorder, I encourage you to reach out. If you are in crisis and need help immediately, you can contact the National Eating Disorder Association by texting NEDA to 741-741. And happy weekend. Welcome to Maybe Running Will Help. Or after hearing today's episode, Maybe Running Won't Help You Right Now. The original question I asked that led to this episode was, can you recover from an eating disorder and run? I had no idea that this question was going to spark what you're about to hear. We have a lot to cover, so lucky for you, I'm not going to ramble on as I usually do. Let's get started.
My name is Kim Fry. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist. I'm a new LMFT supervisor, excitingly, um, as of last month. Um, and I own a group practice called Autonomy Therapy in North Austin, Texas, where we specialize in treating eating disorders, body image issues, and compulsive exercise, among other things. Um, and my experience related to running um, I have both personal and professional experience in the field of running. I myself have historically, I would say, been a runner, put that in quotes, um, and professionally have worked with quite a few clients who are would either, when I'm seeing them, describe themselves as runners and are really involved in the running community or have historically shared being in the running community or having used running to help them manage some of the emotional stuff, that's the fancy word for it, going on for them. To kick off the episode, Kim is going to give us some great insight on where we are today, her thoughts on how we got here, and what we can do about it. I just wanted yeah. to call back to something that you had named, which is so important, which is like growing up, I think I, you know, in hindsight, when you look back, I was surrounded by eating disorders, but nobody was naming them that or you know, and I had no idea all of that was so normalized, which makes so much sense. And I, as a, a therapist, like a mental health clinician, I can say there's so many therapists that do not want to work with eating disorders because they feel so daunting and so scary. And part of the issue is that, and I'm not like just a fact and historically I've been in the same boat. So I will, I will own that too. What makes them so scary is that clinicians have not done the work to necessarily realize that they are still engaging in behaviors that are actually symptoms of disordered eating or eating disorders. And so they feel like, you know, what would I do with this? Because a lot of therapists haven't necessarily done that work and say, you know, I don't work with eating disorders. And yet that's not true. Like the grand majority of their caseload is going to have some type of body image issue and is likely using some type of behavior, whether that's, you know, that a, a diet tip they read in a cosmopolitan magazine when they were a teenager or, you know, going to the gym with the intention to lose weight um, or, or putting on an outfit and saying to a friend, you know, offhandedly, does this make me look fat? I mean, all of that is disordered. Mm -hmm. And yet, because it's normalized in our society, it's not looked at as needing to be explored. And so my, my hope is that this is sort of the, the flag or the neon sign that says like anything related to dieting or the intentional pursuit of weight loss is inherently disordered. According to the National Eating Disorders website, nationaleatingdisorders.org, approximately seven in 10 women and girls report a decline in body confidence and increase in beauty and appearance anxiety which they say is driven by the pressure for perfection from media and advertising's unrealistic standard of beauty. On average, only 5% of the population has the ideal body seen in, in general media. You know, hashtag body positive, and that's one of the greatest critiques of that movement right now is that it's being hijacked by folks with abundance of privilege that mm -hmm. are using it in a really incorrect way and thus devaluing the importance of that movement and taking up space that is really not theirs. Um, whereas what would it be like if instead of like, you know, just promoting more and I'll speaking for myself here, kind of pointing at me as opposed to taking up space as a woman with an 
abundance of privilege. You know, I am Caucasian, heterosexual, cisgender, in, in a body with thin privilege. And it's not my, it's not appropriate for me to go online and take a picture of my body and hashtag it body positive. And I've learned to accept my body. Yes, I can have had, of course, my own struggles with body image. And how many of those struggles would actually be, you know, alleviated or would not take up as much space and how many fears would be alleviated if instead of me taking up that space, we created space for folks in marginal, historically marginalized bodies who have not been able to claim like this, the standard of quote attractive in our culture and challenge systemic racism, phobia, and, and maybe I would as a symptom of challenging all of that and creating more of that like change and creating space for folks that have not been able to take it up and in you know previously maybe ever how much of of that would you know if if I'm afraid of gaining weight if that's not something that's demonized in our culture anymore if I'm not trying to avoid anything so much of my fears would be alleviated and yet daily it's reinforced to counteract these unreal messages, a majority of women and girls around the globe are challenging media to portray more diverse physical appearances, age, race, body shapes, and sizes. The greatest predictor of health outcomes is actually socioeconomic status. Um, and I highly recommend for, for you, for listeners, if you haven't read this book yet, it's by Lindo Bacon called Body Respect. Huh, okay. That really goes into that in more detail. Um, and really explores the factors associated with um, socioeconomic status as one of the greatest predictors of health outcomes. So diet and exercise are like the tip of the iceberg. Um, and unfortunately, we are instant gratification uh, type of creatures. And so we want sort of the quick fix to something. And so when we hear like health, we want to align with that because we're told that the more health that we pursue, the, the more value we have as people, which is incredibly damaging, unfortunately, to us, um, because pursuing health really is not a moral obligation or defines someone as being more worthy. Um, and so all of that has really created the perfect storm to be um, turning to manipulating diet, manipulating exercise as a way to increase our value um, and our worth as human beings. And so exercise, there's so many uh, false narratives associated with it that really contribute to people developing compulsive or completely avoidant relationships with it. Um, and the reason that exercise is not directly correlated with weight or weight loss is because 100% of the energy that we can, you know, our body is not a machine. And that's how that narrative really treats it is 100% of the energy that we consume and energy, in other words, is calories, but calories is so loaded because of diet culture that I typically lean towards energy. It's a bit more neutral, but calories, of course, just a unit of energy. 100% mm -hmm. um, of the energy that, that we get during the day comes from food. Um, and exercise actually really only uses about 10 to 30% on average, 30% being like max. And again, those are like averages. Um, but people like to get attached to the numbers. I would encourage you to not, but just know that exercise really only uses like a, a negligible amount of energy. Um, and so we've been told that this idea that whatever you, and, and that's what the eating disorder gets latched onto and can turn abusive and compulsive is 
the fear of weight gain, right? So when someone eats something, diet culture has perpetuated this idea that don't worry, you can just use exercise or you can just, you know, going back to running, you can just run it all off. Um, I remember no, thinking to myself that was true and, and holding that as like a very black and white belief myself before doing all of this work um, and like really doing the research uh, myself and um, kind of going back the reason that that's obviously not true is because exercise doesn't use, it, it, it's not equitable. Exercise does not use all of the energy that we consume um, from food. Um, the grand majority of that will go to basal metabolic rate, which literally just keeps us alive. Um, and a small percentage will go to digestion. So if exercise was literally, if running was literally capable of quote, burning off what we ate, we would die. Now that we have a better understanding of the societal issues that have and continue to impact people today, I think we're set to hear some of our guests' personal experiences, dive deeper into the complicated world of eating disorders, and consider if and how running can play a role in recovery. My name is Stephanie Clark Haas, Although if you see me in the wild, please feel free to call me Steph. I grew up in Hatboro, Pennsylvania, which is a small town outside of Philadelphia. And I went to college, also in a small town outside of Philadelphia, where I then moved to the city after I graduated from undergrad. And I lived in Philly until about six years ago when I moved to Lutherville Timonium, where I currently live with my husband. I started distance running in 2005 when my friends talked me into running a half marathon because you got a Tiffany's necklace at the end of it. And then I ran my first marathon in 2006 and I just finished my 87th marathon at the beginning of December. During this episode, we're going to hear about how Steph feels running is and has been crucial in her continued decision to challenge her eating disorder. And I agree that running may be a useful tool, but let's hear from someone who is more qualified. So many people out there just draw this hard line with exercise where it, when it comes to recovery. And, you know, don't get me wrong. In some cases, we're all individual. We're all in a on a very individual journey. In some cases, it's necessary to stop exercising in some cases, but those are actually way more rare than we might think. That was Marcus Kane, and he shares his thoughts on exercise and recovery with us throughout the episode. Let's hear a little bit more from him about his qualifications and experience. The job title that I essentially have is a disordered eating informed nutrition coach, though I'm certified in strength and conditioning training, as well as certified in nutrition coaching. Um, and those are probably the two most relevant certifications. I've done a bunch of other certifications within the fitness industry that all kind of create a bigger picture, but really, if I put it in a nutshell, it's a disordered eating informed nutrition and strength and conditioning coach. 
So my experience with disordered eating comes from a combination of what we might call fitness industry and diet stuff gone wrong. And in, in conjunction with the pressure of being a professional performer and, you know, constantly having photos taken and, you know, being in the kind of industry for a while, at least I don't work as a professional performer anymore, but being in an industry where I really felt like my image mattered, where my appearance, like there was a lot of pressure on me regarding my appearance, mm-hmm. you know, and to look a certain way and to represent a certain thing. And yeah, it's, it really was a, a combination of being in that situation where uh, the music industry really placed an emphasis on my appearance. And then as well, I had that background in fitness industry stuff where from a very early age I was you know at the gym with my dad and you know there's nothing wrong with that and I absolutely love those experiences though at the same time when I was growing up I was looking at guys who I didn't realize were using a lot of performance enhancing drugs and I was thinking you know that's what I need to look like yeah. So that that's what I need to be. And so a combination of those different things all led to me just upping the ante, constantly raising the bar for what I needed to do in order to achieve what I thought I needed to achieve in order to be successful and valuable and all that kind of stuff. And once I went down that rabbit hole, even once I realized that something had gone very, very wrong and it wasn't working out, it became quite the journey to undo what I'd done. Though most athletes with eating disorders are female, male athletes are also at risk, especially those competing in sports that tend to emphasize diet, appearance, size, and weight. In weight class sports, wrestling, rowing, horse racing, and aesthetic sports, bodybuilding, gymnastics, swimming, and diving, about 33% of male athletes are affected. When it comes to guys, so few of them actually feel like it's okay to even talk to a professional about it. Like it's just, it's something that guys tend to try and just muscle through and just hide with this. Yeah. With this like intense kind of secrecy about it. And it's something that that's really challenging to deal with. Um, as a professional, because I know that there are a lot of guys out there who are in a lot of pain. A gender sensitive approach with recognition of different needs and dynamics for males is critical in effective treatment. Males in treatment can feel out of place when predominantly surrounded by females. To, to have a guy actually put up his hand and go, yep, this is something I'm struggling with. I'd like to fix it. Can you help me? Yeah. That's it that's very rare it's i i i'm working to raise awareness and to be one of the people who flies that flag and makes it more okay to do that it's probably not surprising that many professionals like marcus who specialize in eating disorders have personal experience and what i was excited to find was that so many of them are not only willing but are passionate about creating more awareness and breaking down stigmas to provide hope to those who feel challenged by the idea of recovery
let's say hi to this experienced professional who shares her story to promote healing in the community and has made it her mission to help those who need encouragement by demonstrating what is possible. Hi, y'all. My name is Nikki Dubois. I work at Eating Recovery Center and Pathlight Behavioral Health. I am an alumni and family liaison at those companies. And my qualifications, I am a licensed master social worker in the state of Texas. I was a patient at the treatment center that I currently work at years ago. Um, I started experiencing disordered thoughts around my body when I was seven. I found little journals that I kept that showed me tracking what I was eating, how much I was moving and just general dissatisfaction with my body. By age six, girls especially start to express concerns about their own weight or shape. 40 to 60% of elementary school girls ages six to 12 are concerned about their weight or about becoming too fat. Which is so sad at age seven to have a child experience that. Um, And that progressed into a full-blown eating disorder at age 15. And I first sought treatment in 2008 for substance use and then 2012 for my eating disorder. According to the National Center on Addiction and Substance Abuse, up to 50% of individuals with eating disorders abused alcohol or illicit drugs a rate five times higher than the general population. My original treatment center didn't catch it, and I uh, was only diagnosed when I was in college. Um, I had a, I was part of a sober organization on campus, and somebody reached out to me with concerns that my body had shifted drastically in the few months that I had been at that university. I struggled for years after treatment. Um, I thought that going to treatment would make me better and it did in some regards. And then a lot of the work was on me and outside of treatment. And that was extremely challenging. I, while I was going through treatment, I didn't really believe that recovery was possible, mainly because I didn't have any examples of people that were living in recovery. With eating disorders, it feels like people recover and then quietly disperse uh, into the crowd. And something that I told myself that I would do if I ever was in the position, which I didn't think I was ever going to be, was to recover out loud. And for me, that means breaking down stigmas of what recovery looks like and what eating disorders even look like, helping spread awareness and being the example that I never had. We're so thankful for people like Nikki who recover openly in order to ensure others have an experience supported by the comfort knowing they are not alone.
The National Eating Disorders Association, NEDA, is the largest nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting individuals and families affected by eating disorders. Their Awareness Week in February is an annual campaign to educate the public about the realities of eating disorders and to provide hope, support, and visibility to individuals and families affected by eating disorders. Before we continue to explore how eating disorders have personally impacted our guests, let's learn more about why we have them and the relationship they have to sport. So I think like eating disorders come in again in lots of different shapes and forms and they usually come from different pathways. We cannot ignore the fact that there is quite a big genetic link. Okay, so genetically there's, you know, I think there's like 70% of eating disorders are genetic in the sense that you are predisposed to developing an eating disorder. That does not mean you will get one, but you are predisposed to one. And then obviously with genetics, if you're put into certain environments, so competitive environments being one or stressful environments or difficult environments, then that's when obviously genes get turned on potentially. So we can't we can't move away from the fact that there's a big genetic link. Now, the other thing is that eating disorders are very closely linked to addiction. So again, this is where exercise falls in beautifully because a lot of people I work with have an exercise dependency as well as an eating disorder. And these two usually sit side by side. That was Renee McGregor. She's a leading sports and eating disorder specialist dietitian with 20 years of experience working in clinical and performance nutrition. So yeah, I'm a sports dietitian. Um, I guess that's quite a broad term, sports dietitian, and um, I particularly specialise, I suppose, in endurance and aesthetic sports. Um, So I work with a lot of runners and triathletes and cyclists, um, but also do a lot of work with ballet and gymnastics. Renee is very well known for her knowledge and experience, particularly about eating disorders within sport. And I knew I had to contact her when I read her following quote in an article on Runner's World UK. In many cases, the root cause has been hidden for many years, only for running to bring these issues to the surface. Often, runners have an eating disorder as a teenager that was never resolved. Here's what else she has to say about that idea that is so closely tied to our community. I think often... Often when we think about teenagers with eating disorders, to a certain degree, they have little choice in their recovery. I'm not saying they shouldn't be recovered, but they have little choice in it in the sense that often parents will march them to services and it will be, this is what you have to do. Mm. So what normally proceeds is the individual will restore the weight they need to restore. And, and I think that's another really poor practice in the eating disorder recovery service world where very much you are monitored on your weight rather than on what's actually going on cognitively Mm -hmm. with you but but let's you know go back to what we're talking about so you you know you hit a milestone you hit your recovery target weight whatever that might be and it's like great you're you're done goodbye keep going in your life oh yeah but you've but you've learned nothing Mm -hmm. about yourself you've learned nothing about the cause and we said right at the beginning eating disorders are a coping mechanism there are they you know all human behavior has a purpose and an eating disorder has a purpose it it feels like the right thing to do when life feels messy and difficult and chaotic um 
And if you've never been shown to understand that, if you don't have this self-awareness that we've just spoken about, about your personality type and how it might respond in certain situations and, and why you might need this, this false sense of security and control, then then you're not going to be able to really move on with your life. And so what I notice happens is because people don't generally want to go backwards, because we know that being underweight, having an eating disorder is really miserable. Nobody enjoys it. It is painful and lonely and isolating and difficult. Mm -hmm. But again, it provides you with this very false sense of safety that somehow you're safe from something that you don't know you're even afraid of. Right. But, but you are. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. And and so what happens is you go in search of finding a different coping mechanism. And so what I've noticed is that a lot of a lot of people I work with have had eating disorders as teenagers and then they've become runners and running helps them to also fulfill that feeling of, well, I've got this false sense of security. If I keep on running, everything's okay. Everything's neat and tidy Uh and I can Uh eat. You know, you almost get into that sense of, well, as long as I'm running, I can earn my food. And that's wrong. And it's not how I view food at all but it's what happens right and everything's fine until the wheels fall off so when somebody gets injured or you know they can't run because they're sick or something else then they realize that actually they don't have a good relationship with food they don't have a good relationship with themselves they don't have a good relationship with running and this is where it then often presents nikki shares what this unhealthy relationship looked like for her as a runner it wasn't just I liked to run. It was that I felt a lot of guilt around not running. And the days that I wasn't able to run because of school or because I didn't feel well, I didn't feel like I deserved to eat those days. I would eat, but I wouldn't. If there was something that looked pleasurable that I liked, I wouldn't allow myself to have that pleasurable item because I didn't feel like I had earned it. That was something that was really ingrained in my eating disorder was that I had to earn special food items. I had to, um, I had to work out to earn pleasure, whether it was hanging out with friends or going out at night or eating something special. It was something that had to be achieved. Um, and that was really hard. That was hard to be 22 and have that mindset and, um, just to be consumed with running. And it did, it did provide me benefits, um, with my mental health coping mechanisms, whether we deem them as something moving us towards our values or not towards our values, they work, right? Like they, they exist in our lives for a reason. If they weren't providing us something, we wouldn't be engaging in them. And so although running was a complicated relationship that I had with it, it was providing me that control and that release it was providing me with a literal escape i was able to tune everything else out in the world and and just focus on my breathing and i literally just had to take the next step and i know that this is a podcast for runners and so i know that people are able to relate to that feeling of everything else just melting away and it's just you and that trail 
I was a trail runner. So even if you're not, it was you and the road, you and whatever. It was just you out there. And everything else, all your worries, stress, everything just seemed to melt away. I did some of my best thinking also when I was out on the trails and it was just, uh, it was a relationship that I had to take a pause on. While Nikki is finding running challenging in her recovery, we'll hear soon how Steph credits running for her motivation to continue healing. But first, how can we identify when our sport has become problematic? So I think if you can't take rest days, then that's a problem. So if you struggle with taking a rest day and it creates anxiety, then that's definitely demonstrates that you have an issue. If you run through pain, and what I mean by pain is like, you know, you've got a niggle, but you still run through it or you train through it, that would suggest there's an issue there. Um, if you um, are sick and you, you keep pushing, you know, I've, I've had a number of actually friends more than than clients who got COVID first time around, you know, when it was obviously very, very problematic and um, they're runners mm-hmm. and, you know, they wanted to rush back to their training and now, and a lot of them are really struggling with yeah. long COVID and problems with fatigue and, you know, autoimmune issues. And, you know, I think like understanding when your body is rested and ready and recovered from an illness is really important but again if you have this compulsive need to move and train then you will you will ignore that now let's merge some thoughts about training looking out for counterproductive behaviors and how movement can be used as a form of treatment if we understand training from the perspective of knowing what our maximum recoverable volume is then we're going to be able to train safely, though it's re- the, the, the key thing with anyone who's training and exercising during their recovery is really understanding and internalizing the difference between training and dissociating. Wow. So someone might be uh, training to the point where it's no longer about optimal athletic performance and feeling good it becomes about suppressing and distracting from other emotions. And, and that, that is the point at which people start training. People start overtraining and going beyond their maximum recoverable volume. And and again, for uh, maximum recoverable volume is essentially the amount of training and exercise we can do and then positively recover from. Mm -hmm. So we know when we've, gone beyond our maximum recoverable volume when we start getting you know regular injuries when we start getting regular sickness you know when our emotions and moods and energy levels start fluctuating like too much when we're overtired you know if we're leaning too much on things like caffeine and stimulants to get through training sessions so there are a few different signs to look for to know if you're overtraining and a lot of people in the name of reaching for that next level of athletic performance do overtrain. I've known a lot of like one of my uh, best mates who I lived with uh, in Melbourne for a while. He was, he was a runner like when, when we were living together and in the name of getting those miles in, he was 
you know, he was always dealing with an injury of some description, but it's, and I would say that at that time he was exceeding his maximum recoverable volume. So, or, you know, maybe not investing quite enough time into his prehab, rehab and recovery practices. So there are, there are so many different things to consider when it comes to someone's exercise program before we just jump the gun and say, you shouldn't be exercising. Like if someone is enjoying their training sessions, training within their maximum recoverable volume. So training to the point where they're recovering from each session, day after day, week after week, month after month, not experiencing burnout and crashes. So they're training the appropriate amount to get you know, those steady incremental gains in performance while as well incorporating incorporating deload weeks and, and recovery weeks here and there and everything like that. If training is done really well, then it's then it's a great a great outlet. It's a great resource. It, it's, you know, a connection into the body. It's brilliant, though, when we cross that line and start overreaching and start using exercise to maybe distract ourselves from from emotion or how we're feeling or whatever, that's when something that has previously been good might start to enter into shaky ground. A progressive move in the treatment field has been the emergence of interventions which focus on body functionality. By emphasizing the properties of the body, what it can do, and how it functions, we move away from the idea that appearance and attractiveness are key pillars of positive body image. And with that said, I think it's a good time to hear more from Steph. It really just, it kind of changed everything. And what I don't know or understand really is, I went through several iterations of therapy and counselors And maybe I just wasn't ready to recover, but they weren't working for me. Whereas running really did. It triggered something in me that I realized I had to look at what I was doing and start eating because I wasn't going to make it to the start line if I didn't figure out how to fix my nutrition. A study in the Netherlands has shown that people who undergo a body functionality-focused intervention reported greater body appreciation and satisfaction. This approach may help us understand why Steph has been able to connect running with her recovery, but we still need to be cautious. Red S isn't necessarily indicative of an eating disorder but it is equally important for runners to be aware of. Some athletes suffering from red S have found time away from their sport is necessary for recovery. Let's go back to Renee for more about red S. Sure. So red S is actually a fairly new term. It only probably reached the sports world back in 2014, 2016. Um, Prior to that, it would have been known as the female athlete triad, which probably more people are familiar with. So, And, and what we understand by the female athlete tried was the work that Barbara Drinkwater did. Um, and what she found was that 
she started to notice that in female athletes particularly, they were getting a lot of bone health injuries and um, bone stress injuries when they didn't have menstruation and they didn't have menstruation due to low energy availability. Um, so that's kind of where this original um, originally came from in the low energy availability. So not having enough energy to support training and your biological function um, was then causing direct problems to bone health in particular, which then affected your ability to, to perform because you were at much higher risk of injury. Mm. Right. Then what happened was we started to see, and actually I saw this very early on. So my work in the sports world started in 2010 and um, I worked in a variety of sports, which is kind of what you know, I would recommend to any new graduate out there who's doing sports nutrition is get as much experience as you can because that's how you learn. And um, what I was seeing was actually this is not just about bone health. I started to see some different trends. Like I started to notice that sometimes they had more higher infection rates. Mm. Definitely performances were starting to become affected. There was much more fatigue. Um, we would see sort of I definitely, because I'd come from a clinical background, I started to see a lot of alignment with what I had worked in with eating disorders. And I was like, oh, this is really interesting. So this is the same process. It's low energy availability that is then having a direct effect on your body and, and your mind potentially. And so it was really interesting. There was a consensus group, the IOC created a consensus group who put forward this idea of REDS, relative energy deficiency in sport, because they realized that it didn't just affect female athletes, it affected both males and females. Right. And it didn't just affect bone health, it affected pretty much every biological system within the body. So what we know is that when there's not enough energy in the system, it starts to downregulate the body's ability to do biological function. So it will affect things like your digestive health, your um, hormonal health, your bone health, your immune health, your circulatory system, um, your your performance, your body composition, every single aspect of you becomes affected. Now, not everything's going to happen to everyone and it's not going to happen severely in everyone because it's very, it's very much on a continuum. So depending on when it happens and how quickly it's picked up and, and the potential cause for it as well will depend on the sort of trajectory and journey of of this now what is interesting is that there are two types of reds so there is what we know as accidental reds which is very much an athlete just not appreciating how much energy they require for the amount of work they're doing so while they may understand that they have nutritional needs around their training they forget about the fact that they are you know um they're busy in their daily lives, they walk their dogs or they commute to their training sessions or they walk around campus or whatever it might be, but they're very, very busy and they don't really appreciate the cost of just being a human being fundamentally. Mm -hmm. And right. so these individuals will accidentally fall into low energy availability in that it's not a conscious decision, it's just they don't realize how much they need. And while they'll present with the same present with the same symptoms, so it might be that they notice recurrent injuries or maybe they found this in females there's a change to their mental cycle or maybe they notice that um, their performance is is just not improving considering out of how much work they're doing although they present with those similar uh, similar symptoms what happened these don't these individuals are not affected psychologically and so actually 
they're quite easy to work with because once we've identified there's a problem we can discuss that with them we can put a suitable intervention into place and within a few weeks months um they can go back to normal and and everything sort of re-establishes itself and, and goes back to normal mm-hmm. now where reds becomes a lot more problematic is when it's a a conscious decision to restrict your eating um, and or increase your training and the reasoning behind the conscious decision could be several fold like it could be it's multifactorial you know a lot of athletes find managing expectations in competitive environments very very difficult and uncomfortable and we are not designed to cope with dis-ease and discomfort we will always move away from uncomfortable feelings and emotions particularly and so while it's not conscious it's not like a conscious um thought process going on it's very much subconscious and it's almost like a blind chatter it tends to present itself as this kind of feeling of dis-ease within themselves this kind of constant need or feeling that something's not right they're not good enough you know Mm -hmm. it's that very sort of mindset and because that's actually more conceptual in the terms of it's much more about what's going on in our mind and our brain and our thoughts and they're not like real in in sense they're not physically available to us Mm -hmm. they can be quite difficult to manage and cope with and so often people find coping mechanisms and when we choose to restrict our eating it could be because the actual process of restriction helps you to contain those difficult emotions temporarily but it does Um, but equally it could be that you know you've decided that you know you've fixated on if I was x body composition then my performance would improve significantly and you've told yourself that and so that then becomes the goal and the focus and what happens is when there's a very rapid change in um energy availability and especially in these situations where the individual probably is predisposed to um having more psychological complications then this becomes a psychological problem as well so it becomes something that's a lot more complicated to work with and definitely needs a much more team and joint up approach so you still need to act on the physical but you also need to support the person on the psychological and help them to get a much better relationship with themselves and help them to understand how to manage these difficult emotions and appreciate that you know what they're doing may have worked temporarily but it doesn't it doesn't lead to being sustainable athletes Now we're going to break down how some professionals strategically treat athletes who have a complicated relationship with food. So when working with athletes who are dealing with a level of disordered eating, when they first disclose that to us, you know, what do we do? Um, well, the first, the first thing we want to assess is what type of care do they need? And that'll lead us to eventually when is exercise a good thing and maybe not such a good thing for the athlete. Before we learn more about levels of care and when returning to sport might be most appropriate, let's say hi to this new guest. He's a runner and experienced clinician, but I'll let him explain. 
Hi, Nikki. My name is David Algies, and I am a father of five from the Midwest. I have two in college and one in high school, as well as two dogs. I love running. I've been doing it for years in lots of different forms. Uh, I started with 5Ks and surprised myself with those. Went on to some 10Ks, some half marathons, and eventually to even doing a few triathlons, which I never thought I'd be able to do. Um, so I'm out on the road quite a bit. All my runs on the asphalt are flat because Indiana is a very flat state. Uh, beyond that, I've been a coach for 11 years. All three of my kids play soccer, um, so lots of running there as well. And then I'm a mental health counselor and professor. So my experience with eating disorders probably began in college. I actually had a guy who was a roommate uh, who dealt with disordered eating. And it was my first time uh, trying to understand what was going on for him, how I could be a help, um, what did that look like. And uh, I'm, I'm happy to say we're still friends today, about 30 years later. Um, he's doing really well. Um, but that was my first exposure to disordered eating. And I really, I really didn't know much about it at the time. Uh, later on, when I went after my master's degree in counseling and later my PhD in counselor education and supervision, I learned quite a bit more about what it is uh, to deal with disordered eating and what's happening in a person's life and what does treatment look like for that. Um, so on top of that, I'm a licensed mental health counselor. I've been in practice for 25, going on 26 years. Uh, that makes me feel a little old to throw out those numbers. But during that time, I've worked in clinical practice with folks with all kinds of topics that they wanted to address, from couples counseling to mood disorders like anxiety and depression to working with teenagers. Uh, 25 years, you cover a lot. But I was introduced to actually working with disordered eating uh, through some colleagues who specialized in this area. Um, first, it was just to get to know what they were doing. Um, then they asked if I would be involved. They wanted to bring in a male therapist to work with husbands and significant others uh, with the clients who were dealing with disordered eating. And um, that quickly, quickly moved to helping to work with the families. You know, what are the families doing well and, and what can we strengthen? But then also, what can we improve if part of the family system and the patterns of relating in the family contributed to a member dealing with an eating disorder, what needs to change there? Uh, and so that became my specialty area, it was working with family members. Um, over time, uh, I also began working with men who were dealing with eating disorders. And that's, uh, that's a little different because uh, of the way men think, but also uh, the way disordered eating can show up. Um, the folks that I saw were largely runners, uh, they were swimmers, they were divers, and they were also um, um, actors. Actors were folks who are also uh, very mindful of the shape that they have, the physique that they have. Um, and then, of course, uh, wrestlers. I dealt with a lot of wrestlers, too. So that was just working in clinical practice. Uh, eventually, though, I helped to found Sela House, which is a residential eating disorder program in the Midwest for women 18 and over. Uh, it was there that uh, I worked with folks who would come and check in for 30 days or more, and we'd work on all kinds of issues to help them get their feet back on the ground and feel like, you know what, I can tackle 
this eating disorder. It doesn't have to dominate my life. Um, additionally, at, in working in academic settings like colleges, I have worked with Division I athletes who have, who have dealt with eating disorders as well as other college students. So there's all kinds of places where this specialty has shown up in my life. And I'm happy to say after 25 years, it's become a specialty of my own. Um, and in answering the question of what level of care do they need, there's really three levels of care for folks dealing with disordered eating. Uh, there's hospitalization, there's residential facilities, and then there's outpatient care. And I'll just touch on each of those very briefly. Hospitalization really is all about stabilizing the body. This is when things have become critical. Um, and obviously in a place like that where we're focusing on keeping the body going, keeping things working, uh, repairing damage that might be done physically, uh, everything else takes a backseat. So obviously no running would want to happen in that environment. You wouldn't want to try that um, the next level of care then is residential care. And this is where folks are going to go to a facility. They're going to check themselves in um, and say, I'm going to stay for a month or I'm going to stay maybe longer if that's what's needed. And this is a place where they're going to be with other folks who are wrestling uh, with getting a handle on disordered eating. Because disordered eating isn't just an event in a person's life. It's part of a system or a style of relating to themselves and to the world around them. And... This takes time to identify. This takes time uh, for the athlete to know what's good, what's not so good, to learn what their triggers are. But more importantly, it's learning to care for their bodies again in a, in a way that's successful. Learning to care for themselves holistically, you know, with their emotions. Can, can you identify your emotions? Um, can you appreciate a constructive and, and, and constructively manage your emotions? on a day-to-day -day basis. Those are skills that you're gonna learn there. Also, same thing for your mind. You know, What do you think about? How do you talk to yourself? Uh, what builds you up? What doesn't build you up? Uh, and then building your spirit too. What does it look like to integrate faith and spirituality at this place in your life, if, if there's a role for it in your story? And then lastly, uh, it's learning to care for their relationships. Uh, what does it look like uh, to care for other people well? And what does it look like to be cared for well? And so you're going to learn about boundaries and practicing those boundaries and getting some confidence with them. And so uh, since we're deconstructing what that style of relating and lifestyle looks like with an eating disorder present, uh, really running is probably going to do more harm than good at this stage. Uh, because again, uh, what we're going to be looking for is some, some strong markers in a lot of these areas. So let me speak to the third, and then uh, uh, I'll give you an idea of when that might fit. So outpatient, then, is the third level of care. And this, this can show up as intensive outpatient, where you're getting together with a small group of people, maybe three or four, for a few hours at a time, um, two or three times a week. Or this could simply be a traditional outpatient setting. And this is what most folks think of when they think of counseling and mental health. And that's one to two meetings per week for about an hour each. Um, in the intensive outpatient, again, you're really working with triggers and, and what leads to uh, that negative thinking and instead replacing it with the positive thinking. So running and endurance sports are probably still going to need to be deconstructed for a while. But when you get to traditional outpatient counseling, that's where running might be a possibility. And this is where you're going to want to talk to your therapist and talk to your dietitian about these things. 
Um, because even though we might feel like we're doing really well on the outside, a dietitian can take a peek on the inside and see if biochemistry is out of whack or if there's something that we need to adjust there and when things are okay. Because we know that eating disorders affect the body internally long before we can see symptoms on the outside. Um, and a therapist is going to know, how are you doing at building that new lifestyle as opposed to the one that included disordered eating? So really weighing in with them at the traditional outpatient level would probably be the first time you'd want to even bring it up. Because the last thing we want to do is, uh, one, physically tear down the body, or two, return to that old style of thinking that led to really unhealthy places for the athlete. Um, but if those things are going well, so what we've got, we've got a restored body weight. We've got a healthy use of boundaries and communication of our needs. If we've got a healthy understanding of what our triggers are, um, if we've practiced and grown in our confidence with our new healthy system of relating and our new healthier self-image and self-talk, and then we've got better uh, relationships with people because we know how to give and receive and ask for what we need. Um, and then we also have a healthier relationship to our body, you know, and that includes exercise uh, and food. If all those things are in place, and not just that we've done it once, but we've practiced it, we've got confidence in it, we can believe in the person we're becoming apart from that disordered eating cycle, um, then that's when we might want to talk about running or an endurance sport. So what does it look like when your assessment indicates you're on a level of care that is not facilitated by movement? Turning it back over to Nikki for this question. When I went into treatment, they told me that I was on a movement restriction. And for me personally, I needed that. I need my body needed to rest. I needed to have my vitals stabilize a little bit better. I also needed to learn how to just be okay with sitting still. And that's not something that I was okay with. I felt like I always had to be doing something. And if I wasn't doing something, then I was lazy. That's not a really a great mindset to have. And it goes back to what I was saying, that I felt like I had to earn just my existence, right? That's the idea of being lazy, right? Like we have to earn being able to just exist. We have to be productive at all times. And so being forced to sit still was so challenging and I was so resentful. And looking back, I see that that was my eating disorder that was resentful. My healthy mindset, my, we call it wise mind, um, it wouldn't have been upset. It would have asked me to please rest that even I wasn't an elite athlete and elite athletes even rest, right? And I wasn't even allowing myself something that people who train at much uh, higher intensity allow themselves. And so I really needed to take a break and, and yeah, running was a coping mechanism and I needed to add in more coping mechanisms. I, I don't necessarily, even as a clinician, think that running is something that you can't do in recovery. It really depends on that person and their relationship with running and, and even where they are at in their recovery.
Recovery can be defined as a return to a normal state of health, mind, or strength. But I like the idea that it is the action or process of regaining possession of something stolen or lost. Because like a thief, eating disorders are often sneaky as they take away our identity and the growth away from them feels like rediscovering something we didn't even know we were missing. In the following clips, some of our guests share what the term recovery looks like from their perspective. You've heard people say that they are recovered from an eating disorder, or some people even say they are fully recovered, but more often than that, I hear that most of us are on a journey, and I definitely am still on a journey. If I say I'm recovered, then I am absolutely lying to you. I still have bad days. I beat myself up when I eat too much. I'm still working through separating food and exercise and that concept of not having to earn your food. But I know I'm moving in the right direction. Uh, I mean, you're going to have good and bad days. And I think that running has helped me recognize these behaviors more clearly and know that I need to keep working on them and keep developing them. Um, And I know that it helps me think through these things. You know, it's a process. It's evolving. There's no end. I don't like the finality of the ending of Recovered, although I, you know, don't act on behaviors and don't, uh, it just doesn't consume me. It doesn't even play a role in my life. I say recovering and recovered. I'm stealing this from one of my friends, McCall Dempsey, who is also in the um, eating disorder community. Um, I like that term because it. I'm also a human being and I'm going to go through new experiences and I am going to feel some discomfort. Um, I know that with the Peloton, there was some discomfort when I quit during one of the workouts. I And I've quit during multiple workouts. And, you know, I, in my uh, running um, career, it was no pain, no gain. And I would push myself to the limits. And now it's like, okay, <laughs> chill out, Nikki. <laughs> Who, like, what am I... Am I trying to beat the next person on their stationary bike? Like, it's just me. And I'm doing this for me. I'm not doing this for changing my body. Like, that's not my motivation. My motivation is for enjoyment. It's for the cardiovascular benefits. It's for the mental health benefits. And if I am not enjoying it, I'm not getting those benefits. So um, I did experience some strong discomfort uh, in stopping. And even one class, it was five minutes until the ending. And I was just spent and I wasn't enjoying it anymore. And I remember having some (laughs) unpreferred thoughts towards myself that, okay, this is ridiculous. It's five minutes, get it together. And I was able to acknowledge like, okay, that is a thought that I'm having and a thought and my thoughts don't have to become my actions. Thank God I learned that. Um, and the action that was going to be more in line with my values 
was listening to my body. And so I was able to get off the bike and honor my body and honor the connection of my mind and body that we're working together instead of working against each other. So I am grateful that I'm able to be present in my body and acknowledge when it needs rest. I always use the term recovery very, very loosely because I think so many people come to my clinic and they think they're recovered um, and yet they're not because they're they're there and they still have a problem with food and exercise. Um, And, you know, yeah, recovery, I guess it's like if we go back to the fact that we know that a lot of, you know, majority of eating disorders are genetic and you tend to have this kind of very perfectionist mindset and you tend to be quite like, um, you probably do tend to be a bit more compulsive as an individual and probably quite highly critical of yourself. And it's being aware of those. It's understanding that you can't necessarily change that. Like that is going to, when you're under stress, when, you're, when your life is, is, is stressful or there is anxiety, you are going to revert back to traits and behaviours that are normal for you. So... Um, in terms of your question around recovery, I think recovery is is being aware that you're never going to be free of stress and perfectionism and, you know, some of the traits that you have because they are inherently you. And it's not about being able to be free of those. It's about knowing how to manage them. You know, instead of trying to control everything, it's about being prepared. So recovery is 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 about that self-awareness and also about that ability to turn up for yourself as well Mm -hmm. as being physically recovered right so it's about like I said earlier it's about being able to know that actually I'm tired today I don't want to train and that's okay giving yourself permission to be able to do that and not feeling this absolute compulsive need to train it's about realizing that yeah maybe you haven't had any vegetables for three days but you know what that's okay it's not going to kill you you don't have to follow the the rules every single day to get it right you know it's, it's about yeah. all these different things it's it's and and then it is about the physical recovery you know it is about hormones being returned to normal it is about your body being able to um respond appropriately so I think recovery is so big and it's both biological and psychological. Somebody who recovering from eating disorder is probably always evolving. You know, it's probably always learning more about themselves and going, oh, that's interesting. I didn't handle that situation particularly well and reflecting and, and then, then moving forward. The common theme I hear is that recovery is a process and it requires self-awareness as well as a range of coping skills, like the one Marcus Kane calls urge surfing, which he describes next. We want to learn to sit with feelings, but not sit in them. Mm-hmm. It's almost like if you walk past a big muddy puddle, you're not going to go and sit in the puddle. You can stand next to it and observe it. Mm-hmm. And, be, and be aware that it's there, but you're not just going to go and sit in it. And some people, when we're told, you know, surf the urge and, and sit with your emotions, they're putting themselves in this kind of position where they're sitting with, first of all, they're going up into their head and, and thinking about the emotion rather than feeling the emotion in the body. 
So they're creating like this thought spiral of terrible thoughts that all build on one another rather than actually being in the body. And it's, it's something that different people seem to resonate with this method in different ways, but urge surfing is essentially the art of learning to tune into the physical experience of different emotions, getting guiding our attention away from the thoughts about something and into the physical experience of something. The important thing to note when it comes to coping skills is balance. We have to have a variety to avoid becoming consumed by any one strategy. At least, I think that's the idea. The other Nikki explains it better. I want there to be some balance and, and to be able to um, reach for therapy skills when, when you are, are needing some comfort. Yeah, it's okay. Don't beat yourself up if you reach for food or if you are going for a run. And I often ask clients, what would they do if they weren't able to run? Or what would they do if they weren't able to do whatever that coping mechanism is, right? I don't want, I didn't want myself to experience that immense discomfort of wanting to crawl out of my skin because I wasn't able to go get rid of that energy out on the trails. And I uh, don't want my clients to experience that either. I want them to be able to recognize that there are many tools and running movement if you're medically stable, I do want to make that caveat, is just one of those tools. And we can add in other forms of movement as well. So we heard from Nikki that running can be a coping skill, but how do we incorporate it and other forms of exercise appropriately into our program? How can professionals support exercise and treat eating disorder thinking? Yeah, this is, this is the... This is the question that a lot of professionals are not addressing. And something that I think is, I definitely think it's a mistake and it's, it's not something that is working towards recovery with the client. If you're, if say the client one of my clients say that they are a runner or say that they are a collegiate athlete or they play a sport in high school. If I'm not talking to them about movement and giving them a space to share and process, they're going to be doing it. And they're not going to be doing it with the ability to have that reflection, to have that pause, to have a safe space to reflect on did that feel more in line with my eating disorder? Did that feel more in line with recovery? I'm, I'm doing them a disservice if I'm not giving that space. That, again, is with the caveat that they are medically stable. And like I had mentioned previously, that eating disorders are complex and need to be treated by professionals that are specializing in eating disorders, the patients, clients, if they're in outpatient settings, 
they need to have a medical doctor that's able to do their lab results and seeing a dietitian to make sure that their movement is being supported if their their medical doctor clears them and if the therapist and dietitian and the treatment team in general has decided that this is this is the time and space for them to work on on movement i when i was in treatment and they it's i i don't think this is a common practice anymore i was allowed to get a membership at a gym and i was able to test my ability to stick within parameters that had been given to me so after i had was no longer on my movement restriction i was able to walk on a treadmill and the specific parameters were i was able to walk on a treadmill and they gave me i don't know what it is now and but they gave me like a a speed that i needed to stay below and it was specifically mentioned that it needed to be on zero incline and i was able to do this for some set time i i can't remember the time that they gave me three times a week as well as yoga once a week so they were working with me on implementing movement back in and i immediately the very first time that i went to the gym i went like 0.5 above what they had told me was my speed and i put the incline up so my eating disorder was like okay we're going to do what they're saying but just blur the lines a smidge and that was the control that my eating disorder was wanting to have i i wasn't able to in those in those times i wasn't able to to stay within in the recommendations of my treatment team and that was important data to give my team and i was able to share that with them and to reflect what that meant what that 0.5 increase in speed what that meant for me and what that one i don't even know what the incline measurement works out to but whatever that one <laughs> incline what that meant to me and why it felt so important for me to to push those boundaries and those are conversations that professionals are missing out with their clients also assessing for what their motivation is for movement I'm thrilled to hear that running has a place in the right circumstances. And I find Nikki's point about the information that can be realized when clients are allowed to practice movement really interesting and valid. Thankfully, some professionals are talking about how to return to sport, like David. So for some folks, running may not be an option, um, but for some, it can be. And that's what I want to talk about just a little bit more. So we're going to start slow with that. Maybe you try uh, strength-based exercises. And so that would be like if you get on a treadmill, you, you set it on a really low speed but put a high incline on it. Uh, or skills-focused sport rather than an endurance sport to get you started. And so that would be like dance or gymnastics or figure skating or rock climbing. Things that don't put a sustained endurance into your system. Um, also, uh, do it differently. Instead 
instead of doing these things on your own, do it with a team. Team up with some folks to run and make it about the relationships. Go into it looking forward to who you're going to see today rather than uh, counting the numbers or rather than uh, managing the emotions or rather than trying to punish yourself for something that, that you ate. Remember, it's not always about the eating, is it? It's also about the emotions and the relationships and the way we think about ourselves is going on inside. So the question becomes, where do we put our mind? I mean, running is a celebration of what our body can do. It's not, it's not a punishment for something we felt uh, in the past. So how do we focus on those relationships? How do we focus on keeping our mind in a good space? Well, some folks can talk while they're jogging. I'm not one of them. Um, once I start moving, I, I can't talk to another person. And the last thing I want to do is fall back into that old style of thinking that came along with disordered eating. And instead, what I want to do is I want to shift my mind. I want to shift it to uh, other things. It is such a reflective process to think all the way through uh, a run. So instead of thinking, let's shift our focus external to our body. And so these are called grounding exercises that can be great. Um, and stay invested in them while you're running, okay? So get invested in the world around you. What are, what are four things you can see uh, as you're running? What are three things you can touch while you're running? What are two things you can hear while you're running? And what's one thing you can smell? This is going to put your focus on your senses and the external world around you. And it takes us away from those negative cognitions and those internal monitors that we can often do when we're running. So focus on the external as much as you can. And then, and then do it again. And then do it again. Another one that some folks have told me has been helpful is focusing on math because it's hard for all of us. But I would say if you're one to focus on the numbers and that's part of your old style of relating... Don't do it. Don't do it. Instead, focus on the world around you and see what's around you. Hear what's around you. Touch what's around you. And, and, and smell what's around you. And that run's going to be a lot more fun. Um, and it may be short. It may be short for a while because what's important isn't a distance. It's not catching up with what you used to do. That's not what athletes do. Athletes focus on what's my internal process. Athletes focus on how do I perform my best, even if the numbers don't look right. So let that go. It's all about recovery. It's all about creating a new system from the inside out that is so much healthier. And that's what we want to see happen. And for some folks, that can happen. That's great news for our community, including me and Steph. I wouldn't want it any other way. I have had such incredible experiences through running. I have traveled the country. I have traveled several places on my own without hesitation to run marathons. I've made friends all over the country through this incredible sport. And it really does tie us all together. We started this episode with Kim Fry talking about the best known environmental contributor to the development of eating disorders, which is the sociocultural idealization of thinness. 
And I want to leave you with some more thoughts on this topic because we can't ignore that our environment plays a role in sustaining complicated and sometimes dangerous relationships with food and our bodies. Your body is the least interesting thing about you. Like nobody knows anything about you or anything about your health behaviors just by looking at your body because body diversity exists and we could all eat the same and move the same and, and run the same amount. Our bodies would still look different. Some people have the privilege of, of having the societal ideal that raised and reinforced. Um, and instead of using that, that platform and that privilege to reflect like, I, you know, this is my body. This is what it does kind of no matter what, I'm going to stay within this range and, and other people's bodies are going to look different. The fitness industry has capitalized on that privilege and use it as a money-making opportunity and have basically said, oh, if you spend enough money and you work hard enough, you can look like me. And the fitness industry and the diet culture industry at large, the one of the only industries that when the product fails, we blame ourselves. Nikki exposes related problems in the following clip, as well as a few additional concerning observations in the community. I I see a lot of people who have shifted their weight on the lower end of the spectrum that then think they are qualified to give life advice um, and dietary advice. And that really frustrates me. Um, I see influencers in the fitness and running community that are taking advantage of plastic surgery, which is, you know, their own prerogative. And then they're taking pictures of them at the gym, acting as if they achieved these unachievable um, feats in the gym, as opposed to having that done um, by a doctor. And I don't like the selling of a false narrative. I also think that there are people, I, I, I wanna assume best intentions with, with a lot of these people. Um, there's a lot of fat phobia within the fitness community that people in larger bodies are failed thin people. And it just really underlines the message for me that these people in this community have no business giving advice, therapeutic advice, life advice, um, especially dietary advice. If registered dietitian is who you should be seeing, not not somebody who is claiming to be a health coach or or whatever um, they might be claiming to be. I think that um, it's very important to be seeing professionals that have the qualifications and have the experience. And specifically, if you are working on an eating disorder, I would absolutely recommend seeing some uh, treatment team specifically that is specialized in eating disorders. There are uh, a lot of therapists and dietitians that are great for people that don't have eating disorders. And there can be a lot of harm done in those rooms if there is not that clinical experience and 
Eating disorders are complex and um, need that need that additional specialization and oversight. Thanks, Kim and Nikki, for those final important words and reminders. You can find Nikki on IG at Conversations with Cole. And here's where you can catch Kim. And so people can find us. Our website is www.autonomy.com. Um, so that is my group practice website. On that website, um, I had mentioned the Intuitive Movement Masterclass on that you know, your interest has been peaked or you're wanting to heal your relationship, get, you know, start working on your relationship with your body image. Um, you can access the intuitive movement masterclass via our website on our, our courses drop down. Um, I think it should say on the top tab, like courses and supervision. And then I believe it's, it's the tabs underneath that, which they can click on um, and get direct access to. And then our Instagram is uh, at autonomy therapy. ATX. So there's a theme here. <laughs> and then Facebook <laughs> autonomy therapy. Um, and then my Instagram as a as a provider. I, I post I post much less often. You'd have probably be more entertained just following autonomy, but it's uh Kim G therapy. And then if you are in the city of Austin and um, are wanting mental health services, actually in Texas, if you are open to virtual, because our clinicians are licensed in the state of Texas, mm-hmm. uh, we are always accepting new clients. Um, you know, if we ever have a lull, we put you on a wait list and can reach out. Um, but we do have a contact form on the website. And then if you are in Austin in February on the 12th, I will actually be teaching a 30 minute bar class. I guess I should have mentioned I'm a former bar instructor and personal trainer. I guess I completely forgot that also makes <laughs> me a bit qualified to talk about eating disorders and exercise. Um, but I'm a former bar instructor and personal certified personal trainer through NASM. And I will be teaching a 30-minute standard bar class at Fabletics, which is a clothing company um, at the Barton Creek location, the Barton Creek Mall. They have a new Fabletics store. So I'm sort of part of the initial wave of classes. And uh-huh. um, they always offer some fun discounts day of. So, uh, Oh, man, I wish tuned. I lived closer. That's awesome. Me too. Me too. <laughs> Next time. Renee and Marcus were also kind enough to provide their information for anyone who wants to reach out. Thank you both so much for participating. It was super fun to speak with you from across the pond. And I know all our listeners from the States are going to love your British accents as much as I do. Yeah, so we are taking new clients. We we had a little bit of a, a break um, before Christmas because we were... Um, you know, we, were, we had quite a few, but we are taking new clients just um, as of today. Um, there's lots of information on the website, which is reenemcgregor.com. But there's also lots of information on my Instagram account, which is r underscore McGregor. Um, and in terms of when I say information, like I always put out educational posts. So even if you don't feel ready to work with me or the team, then, you know, maybe reading some of the posts could be a good step forward. I often get people messaging me going, you know, you don't know me, but actually I've been reading your posts and it's really helped me. So you may find that that in itself will be enough to, to just get you on the right track. Um, but yes, we are taking um, new clients. We work both like nutritionally and behaviorally. So, so we try and provide the full package and help people to get back to their sport as quickly as they can, but also in a much more resilient manner. 
For sure. The most reliable place to contact me is via Instagram at the moment. I'm on Instagram every day. So that's MKane Coaching. That's M-K-A-I-N Coaching on Instagram. And uh, yeah, that's definitely the most reliable place to find me right now. You can find access to my podcast and everything through through my Instagram. But yeah, to touch base, Instagram's the one. Now, some final words from David. He made the ending to this show pretty easy for me. Okay, that's what I would tell you guys about uh, running and how it fits. I know it's a lot to think about, a lot of aspects to consider. I definitely want to say you've got to be talking to mental health professionals on this and your own mental health professional. Don't just make decisions based off a podcast. Don't ever do that. Um, this is too important. You are too important to, to not invest in the best version of you. So talk to your counselor because disordered eating can be terribly specific and things that are triggering for you aren't for another person. Things that are good for you aren't for another person. And so it's really hard to talk in terms of generalities when what you need is specificity. So go find that mental health counselor who can help you. If there's an eating disorder specialist you can talk to, go grab them. They're fantastic. And of course, a dietitian and your family practice doc. A lot of folks are going to come around to help you because you're going to succeed. This can be beaten and you can have a life beyond it. So uh, check in with all of them and thanks for spending time with me today. Thanks for listening to Maybe Running Will Help. This podcast is a production of Anchor. If you like this show, remember you can hear it here on Anchor, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts, or any app you use to listen to podcasts. If you want to get in touch, you can leave me a voice message or direct message me on Instagram or Facebook at Maybe Running Will Help. If you have a story you are willing to share with the community, please reach out. Keep running, keep inspiring, and keep sharing how Maybe Running Will Help. Have a great run, everybody.